Part three, chapter nineteen of War and Peace by Leo Tolstoy, translated by Nathan Haskell Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Marianne. On the Pratzer Hill, in the same spot where he had fallen with the flagstaff in his hand, lay Prince Andrei Bolkonsky, his life blood oozing away, and unconsciously groaning, with light, pitiful groans, like an ailing child. By evening he ceased to groan, and lay absolutely still. He did not know how long his unconsciousness continued. Suddenly he felt that he was alive and suffering from a burning and tormenting pain in his head. Where is that lofty heaven which I had never seen before, and which I saw today? That was his first thought. And I never knew such pain as this, either, he said to himself. Yes, I have never known anything— anything at all, till now. But where am I? He tried to listen, and heard the trampling hooves of several horses approaching, and the sounds of voices talking French. He opened his eyes. Over him still stretched the same lofty heavens, with clouds sailing over it in still loftier heights, and beyond them he could see the depths of endless blue. He did not turn his head or look at those who, to judge from the hoofbeats of the horses and the sounds of the voices, rode up to him and paused. These horsemen were Napoleon, accompanied by two aides. Bonaparte, who had been riding over the field of battle, had given orders to strengthen the battery that was cannonading the dyke of Auguste, and was now looking after the killed and wounded left on the battlefield. De beaux hommes, handsome men, said Napoleon, gazing at a Russian grenadier, who lay on his belly, with his face half buried in the soil, and his neck turning black, and one arm flung out and stiffened in death. The ammunition for the field guns is exhausted, sire. Half that of the reserves brought, said Napoleon, and then a step or two nearer he paused over Prince Andre, who lay on his back with the flagstaff clutched in his hands. The flag had been carried off by the French as a trophy. Voila, un bel amant, said Napoleon, gazing at Balkonsky. Prince Andre realized that this was said of him, and that it was spoken by Napoleon. He heard them address the speaker as sire, but he heard these words as though they had been the buzzing of a fly. He was not only not interested in them, but they made no impression upon him, and he immediately forgot them. His head throbbed as with fire. He felt that his lifeblood was ebbing, and he still saw far above him the distant, eternal heavens. He knew that this was Napoleon, his hero, but at this moment, Napoleon seemed to him merely a small, insignificant man in comparison with that lofty, infinite heaven with the clouds flying over it. It was a matter of utter indifference to him who stood looking down upon him or what was said about him at that moment. He was merely conscious of a feeling of joy that people had come to him, and of a desire that these people give him assistance and bring him back to life, which seemed to him so beautiful, because he understood it so differently now. He collected all his strength to move and make some sound. He managed to move his legs slightly, and uttered a weak, feeble, sickly moan that stirred pity even in himself. "'Ah, he is alive,' said Napoleon. "'Take up this young man, ce jeune homme, and take him to the temporary hospital.' Having given this order, Napoleon went on to meet Marshal Lenz, who, removing his hat and smiling, rode up and congratulated him on the victory." Prince Andrei recollected nothing further. He lost consciousness of the terrible pain caused by those who placed him on the stretcher, and by the jolting as he was carried along, 
and the probing of the wound. He recovered it again only at the very end of the day, as he was carried to the hospital together with the other Russian wounded, and taken prisoner. At this time he felt a little fresher, and was able to glance around, and even to speak. The first words which he heard after he came to were spoken by a French officer in charge of the convoy, who said, "'We must stop here. The emperor's coming by immediately. It will give him pleasure to see these prisoners.' "'There are so many prisoners today, almost the whole Russian army. I should think it would have become an old story,' said another officer. "'Well, at any events, this man here, they say, was the commander of all the Emperor Alexander's guards,' said the first speaker." indicating a wounded Russian officer in a white cavalier guard's uniform. Volkonsky recognized Prince Repnin, whom he had met in Petersburg society. Next him was a youth of nineteen, an officer of the cavalier guard also wounded. Bonaparte, coming up at a gallop, reined in his horse. "'Who is the chief officer here?' he asked, looking at the wounded. They pointed to Colonel Prince Repnin. "'Were you the commander of the Emperor Alexander's horse guard regiment?' asked Napoleon. I commanded a squadron, replied Repnin. Your regiment did its duty with honor, remarked Napoleon. Praise from a great commander is the highest reward that a soldier can have, said Repnin. It is with pleasure that I give it to you, replied Napoleon. Who is this young man next you? Prince Repnin named Lieutenant Suchtelen. Napoleon glanced at him and said with a smile, Il est venu, bien jeune faute et à nous very young to oppose us. Youth does not prevent one from being brave, replied Solktelen in a broken voice. A beautiful answer, said Napoleon. Young man, you will get on in the world. Prince Andrei, who had been placed also in the front rank, under the eyes of the emperor, so as to swell the number of those who had been taken prisoner, naturally attracted his attention. Napoleon evidently remembered having seen him on the field, and turning to him he used exactly the same expression, young man, as when Bolkonsky had the first time come under his notice. Et vous, jeune homme? Well, and you, young man, said he, addressing him. How do you feel, mon brave? Although five minutes before this Prince André had been able to say a few words to the soldiers who were bearing him, he now fixed his eyes directly on Napoleon, but had nothing to say. To him at this moment, all the interests occupying Napoleon seemed so petty, his former hero himself, with his small vanity and delight in the victory, seemed so sordid in comparison with that high, true, and just heaven which he had seen and learned to understand, and that was why he could not answer him. Yes, and everything seemed to him so profitless and insignificant in comparison with that stern and majestic train of thought induced in his mind by his lapsing strength, as his life-blood ebbed away by his suffering and the near expectation of death. As Prince Andrei looked into Napoleon's eyes, he thought of the insignificance of majesty, of the insignificance of life, the meaning of which no one could understand, and of the still greater insignificance of death, the thought of which no one could among men understand or explain. The emperor, without waiting for any answer, turned away, and as he started to ride on, said to one of the officers, have these gentlemen looked after and conveyed to my bouviac. Have Dr. Larry himself looked after their wounds. Au revoir, Prince Repnin. And he touched the spurs to his horse and galloped away. His face was bright with self-satisfaction and happiness. 
the soldiers carrying prince andrei had taken from him the gold medallion which the princess marya had hung around her brother's neck but when they saw the flattering way in which the emperor treated the prisoners they hastened to return the medallion prince andrei did not see how or by whom the medallion was replaced but he suddenly discovered on his chest outside of his uniform the little image attached to its slender golden chain it would be good thought prince andrei letting his eyes rest on the medallion which his sister had hung around his neck with so much feeling and reverence it would be good if everything were as clear and simple as it seems to the princess marya how good it would be to know where to find help in this life and what to expect after it beyond the grave how happy and composed i should be if i could say now lord have mercy on me but to whom can i say that it is force impalpable incomprehensible which i cannot turn to or even express in words is it the great all or nothingness said he to himself or is it god which is sewed in this amulet which my sister gave me nothing nothing is certain except the insignificance of all within my comprehension and the majesty of that which is incomprehensible but all-important the stretcher started off at every jolt he again felt the insufferable pain his fever grew more violent and he began to be delirious the dreams about his father his wife his sister and his unborn son and the feeling of tenderness which he had experienced on the night before the battle the figure of the little insignificant napoleon and above all the lofty sky formed the principal content of his feverish imaginations he seemed to be living a quiet life amid calm domestic happiness at luisia Gouri. he was beginning to take delight in this blissful existence when suddenly the little napoleon appeared with his unsympathetic shallow-minded face expressing happiness at the unhappiness of others and once more doubts began to arise and torment him and only the skies seemed to promise healing balm toward morning all his imaginations were utterly confused and blurred in the chaos and fogs of unconsciousness and forgetfulness which much more likely according to the opinion of dr loret napoleon's physician would end with death than recovery c'est un sujet very belou il ne he won't recover prince andrei together with other prisoners hopelessly wounded was turned over to the care of the natives of the region end of chapter 19 end of part 3 and end of volume 1 of war and peace by leo tolstoy translated by nathan haskell doyle and recorded by marianne spiegel in chicago illinois february 2013 thank you to cat rose for proof listening this volume